0: Hello, and Merry Christmas. I hope you had a blessed Christmas day, and uh, and please accept my sincere wishes for a blessed Christmas season. And I'm actually going to talk about my Christmas a, a little bit later in the program, but to start things off, welcome to No Nonsense Catholic, what is almost certainly going to be our final uh, program in this radio format. Uh, in the new year, going to use a podcast format without the, uh, the hard breaks and all of that and see how that works out. But uh, to start things off, this week I mentioned—last week, actually, we opened it with a story about Cardinal Gregory and his claim that the reason that there were so many traditional Latin Masses being celebrated in D.C. when he became bishop is that there were priests there who introduced the traditional Latin Mass without the faithful even asking for it. <laughs> Which, you know, frankly, I am I, skeptical— But uh, even if it were true, it fails to take into account Benedict XVI's position that the old rite is a treasure for all Catholics and that in Universi Ecclesia, the instruction that he sent to the bishops in 2011, he said, and I quote, Samorum Pontificum constitutes an important expression of the magisterium of the Roman pontiff and has the aim of offering to all the faithful, the Roman liturgy in the Usus Antiqua, that's the traditional Latin Mass, considered as a precious treasure to be preserved, promoting reconciliation at the heart of the church. Now, you notice that he said that the Old Rite, the traditional Latin Mass, is for all the faithful, as opposed to the uh, JP 2 Indult, uh, when, when only a stable community who asked for it could could have a, a traditional Latin Mass. And even then, you know, most bishops... Uh, refused to cooperate. But rather, it was Benedict XVI's desire that every parish have a traditional Latin mass, even before uh, Universa Ecclesia was put out. And of course, he put it out because bishops weren't responding as generously as he had hoped in 2007. So, you know, four years later, he put out another document saying, hey, get to it. And uh, but But even before then, in 2008, just one year after Samorum Pontificum was promulgated, Cardinal Kastrian Hoyos, the uh, president of the Pontifical, Bibli- uh, Pontifical Commission, Ecclesia Dei, said, quote, let me say this plainly. The Holy Father wants the ancient use of the Mass to become a normal occurrence in the liturgical life of the Church so that all of Christ's faithful, young and old, can become familiar with the older rites and draw from their tangible beauty and transcendence the holy father wants this for pastoral as well as for theological reasons and at a press conference that day he uh, some reporter asked would the pope like to see many ordinary parishes making provision for the traditional latin mass whereupon his eminence replied and i quote all parishes not many all the parishes because this is a gift of God. He offers these riches, and it is very important for new generations to know the past of the Church. This kind of worship is so noble, so beautiful, the deepest theologian's way to express our faith. The worship, the music, the architecture, the painting makes a whole that is a treasure. The Holy Father is willing to offer to all people this possibility— not only for the few groups who demand it, but so that everybody knows this way of celebrating the Eucharist in the Catholic Church, unquote. So, clearly, it was the manifest will of Pope Benedict XVI that pastors should introduce the traditional Latin Mass to congregations, whether they requested it or not. And the evidence is irrefutable, and it makes the claims of Traditionis Custodis even more reprehensible. And it makes you wonder why it is less than a year after instructing the bishops to bring the traditional Latin Mass to every parish, Pope Benedict XVI suddenly decided that it was a good time to resign the papacy. Hmm. Anyway, in any case, to those who are inclined to agree with Cardinal Gregory, I would ask, how many of the faithful exactly requested the Novus Ordo? Uh, And let the record show there was no call for it. You know, it was imposed from above, and the immediate response was that millions of Catholics abandoned Sunday Mass altogether, and they've been bleeding out ever since. You know, it's like communion in the hand or or these other novelties. It was shoved down the people's collective throat. It wasn't because we asked for it. You know, this is from a letter to the tablet, the English paper back in um, 1964. So this is six years before... Uh, the imposition of the Novus Ordo, at the very beginning of the liturgical chaos that that, uh, followed Vatican II. An English benedictine, Dom Gregory of Downside Abbey, wrote, quote, the plea that the laity as a body do not want liturgical change, whether in right or in language, is, I submit, quite beside the point. So he's admitting that the Church doesn't want it, that the the faithful don't want a new liturgy, they don't want it uh, in a new language. But he says that's beside the point. It's not a question of what people want, It's a question of what's good for them, or perhaps we should say a question of what we think is good for them. You know, obviously the modernist elite, well, they know what's best for us, and that attitude on the part of many, if not most, in the Catholic hierarchy has not changed. The point is that, that modernist bishops, having so thoroughly destroyed so much of Catholic belief and practice, now insist that they alone know how to fix it. We're the only ones that can save the Church. You know, and, and the same—it's just as true now as it was whatever 50 years ago. And it's interesting that that the bishops and priests who were the most disobedient to John Paul II and Benedict XVI are the same ones who are now insisting on blind obedience to Pope Francis and, by extension, themselves. Somebody recently said that uh, the Catholic Church is the only institution on the earth where men in their 70s and 80s regularly uh, tell people in their 20s and 30s that they need to get with the times. Ah. But it's become exceedingly clear that Francis and company want to do to the hearts and souls of a new generation of Catholics that love the traditional Mass, the same as Paul VI and, and his cohorts did to the whole church in 1970. You've got to remember that up until 1970, every Roman Catholic, assisted at the traditional Latin Mass. Everyone, every Catholic was what we would call today a traditionalist Catholic, at least in worship. It's a very sobering reality that in a single generation, I can honestly say we are all modernists now. Uh, Even the most traditional among us cannot fail to be affected by it. It's in the very air we breathe. One person on Facebook uh, posted a comment, the Novus Ordo was forced on us. I remember well, he says, uh, being told that if I didn't go along with the new Mass, I'd surely go to hell because I'd be outside the church. Of course, that was back in the day when the Catholics were taught outside the church, there's no salvation. That hasn't changed, by the way. (laughs) Another one said, my husband and I never requested the traditional Latin Mass, but our young adult daughter discovered it and fell in love with it and asked us to visit, and so naturally we did. As people who never knew to look or ask for the traditional Mass— Right, Because this has been going on for a long time. She identifies herself as a Gen X Catholic married to a convert. She says, we were deeply impacted. If you don't show or teach us, how are we supposed to know what we're missing? If you don't teach a child faith with diligence, how can they remain faithful? Good questions. Someone else said that he discovered the traditional Mass online in 2021. Presumably when the other Masses were closed. He said, since then, it's been a mix of blessings at having access to the beautiful patrimony readily online, if not in my archdiocese, and sadness that this patrimony was snatched away from my generation before we could even come to know it. The heart of the issue is that modernists think that the Mass is about the assembly, uh, that it's about celebrating the community. And what many Catholics are rediscovering is that the Holy Mass is not about us. It's about offering the sacrifice of Christ to Almighty God. It is a matter of the glory that is due to Him. It's not about human satisfaction or, you know, God forbid, entertainment. And here's the thing. When Catholics are made aware that the traditional Latin Mass, which has been unjustly suppressed, uh, was the only Mass of the Roman Catholic Church for millennia and longer, and that it produced an army of saints, the danger that modernist bishops like Cardinal Gregory perceive is that those faithful Catholics will discover that the Novus Ordo Mise is not just the old Mass in the vernacular, but that it's been substantially altered, significantly altered in substantial ways. See, I can remember when I discovered the John Paul II Indult Mass uh, at a parish, you know, several towns over from where we lived, and when, you know, my family and I started assisting there there were still priests in the diocese that said we were going to a condemned mass. Uh, you know, that the indult was granted only for elderly priests and that it shouldn't be attended by, by young families uh, looking to worship like their forefathers. This, of course, was a lie. And one priest even warned me that I ran the risk of imbibing the schismatic mentality from the traditional Latin mass, that, it, that the traditional mass is Schismatic compared to the new Mass, he said, you're going to wind up outside the church because you're going to find out what it really teaches, I guess. I can't make this stuff up. But, you know, regarding that claim that that in recent days the traditional Mass has been imposed on anybody, there was a priest that recently said that um, he had always put aside, you know, he pushed the idea of learning the traditional Mass to the back burner. He wasn't really interested in it. That is, quote, until some lay people— in the region asked me repeatedly to learn it. So no no imposition here. Indeed quite the opposite. Especially as I was informed from above that I had quote better things to do unquote than fulfill the faithful's request. And notice that nowhere in in any of these remarks has anybody and from many different people has anyone said that there's any mentality that the Novus Ordo was illegitimate or that it needs to be abolished or anything like that. And that's no nonsense. Going to pick up with this and lots more when we come back on the other side of this break. You're listening to No Nonsense Catholic on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Great to have you along with us. Christmas edition. Be right back after these messages. Welcome back to No Nonsense Catholic. So, as we were saying, you know, Cardinal Gregory said that tradition dies a slow, often bloody death, and meaning, I guess, that it's hard to get rid of. I'm kind of reminded of uh, the way that uh, Barack Obama rather disdainfully said that, uh, you know, conservatives are not going to, you know, they're not getting with the the new neo-Marxist program because, quote, they cling to their Bibles and their guns, or as we like to refer to it, the uh, freedoms guaranteed by the First and Second Amendment. But uh, when when Cardinal Gregory says tradition dies a slow death, he, he shows his contempt, his disdain for the real meaning of tradition, namely that which is handed on. Big T tradition, sacred tradition, is the handing down of Catholic truth, the handing on of beliefs and customs by word and example from one generation to another to another to another for 2,000 years, which is, by the way, the only reason that the Catholic Church is, you know, the the one institute or institution from 2,000 years ago that's still around. Such tradition cannot die because revelation, the the divine truth, is eternal. And as someone once said, the, the, the traditional mass, like the faith itself, will never die. But all those who oppose it will. I'll give the last word to Dr. Alice von Hildebrand. This is from an interview back in 2001. She said, "The devil hates the ancient mass. He hates it because it's the most perfect reformulation of all the teachings of the Church. It was my husband, that's Professor Dietrich von Hildebrand, whom Pius XII called the twentieth-century doctor of the Church. It was my husband who gave me this insight about the mass." The problem that ushered in the present crisis was not the traditional Mass. The problem was that priests who offered it had already lost the sense of the supernatural and the transcendent. They rushed through the prayers, they mumbled and didn't enunciate them. That is a sign that they had brought to the Mass their growing secularism. The ancient Mass does not abide irreverence, and that's why so many priests were just as happy to see it go. course, God is allowing this. Something to remember when you're going through difficult times that this was not unforeseen by God. It's not a deviation from his plan. It's a part of the plan. Best thing to come from uh, these circumstances so far, I think, is that Catholics are discovering that they've been had. I mean, as always, let me emphasize that for me, a traditional Catholic Is uh, someone who, not someone who exclusively assists at the traditional Latin Mass, but rather someone who holds the Catholic faith whole and entire, whichever liturgy they might attend. And if Rome really wanted to become a listening church, bad idea, but if they really wanted to become a listening church, they wouldn't ignore and marginalize and frankly persecute the most faithful among the flock. To put it bluntly, modernism is a house of cards built on faulty, uh, the the shifting sands of faulty premises. And its days are numbered. And that's no nonsense. Okay, now this very year, we had the um, interesting circumstance where the fourth Sunday of Advent and Christmas Eve were the same day. And so I took my family Uh, pardon me, to assist at the traditional Latin Mass for the fourth Sunday of Advent. But this year, my beloved wife, for Christmas, wanted to go to the Midnight Mass at our parish. Naturally, it's it's not a a traditional Latin Mass. It was an English Novus Ordo. Now, the reason that we still have a local traditional Latin Mass in my diocese, by the way, is because our parish is staffed by uh, religious priests, priests from a religious order as opposed to diocesan priests. And and since the parish is out of the way for us, I mean, it's again several towns over. We don't attend the Novus Ordo there, and and I forget that uh, that you know the Novus Ordo there is is actually much better celebrated than the the other masses in the diocese. I mean, uh, typically the only reason I go to the uh, Novus Ordo mass is because circumstances prevent my going to the the traditional one. And so you know we rarely experience the the this uh better celebration of the new mass, but um uh you know they they have good music, they have solid preaching um, people receive communion from the priest while kneeling at the communion rail and and so forth right it's that it's kind of a unicorn uh, amongst nova sort masses, but of course, it was Christmas, and so we had some creasters there those these are uh Catholics that only go to mass on Christmas and Easter, and I noticed something, and I want to share this with you. Whatever form of the mass that you attend, if you kneel for communion, there's no need to bow or genuflect before you step up to the rail. Okay, that 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 bow, it's called an obeisance. Um, it's exclusively for when you are going to receive communion standing. In fact, it's intended to make up for the fact that you're not kneeling. So kneeling uh, removes the the reason for it. There's no reason to make that obeisance if you're going to kneel to receive our Lord. And I only bring this up because I'm, I almost bowled over some poor fellow who stopped short to bow before he knelt at the communion rail. Um, and you know, and the mass it was lovely. It was nice. The, the choir was good. It was celebrated with appropriate dignity and solemnity. There were no altar girls or extraordinary ministers of holy communion the priest gave a good solid christmas homily okay so it was all in all a, a lovely experience of the new mass however and this is not a criticism by the way um the the priest celebrant employed a popular perspective regarding the christmas story that's not at all wrong okay like i say it's not a criticism or a correction. But it's only one perspective among several legitimate scriptural interpretations. And so, I, well, it's, it's namely, it's an understanding of the so-called anxiety of St. Joseph. And since this is almost certainly the case uh, with the homily that you heard this year, I wanted to share the alternatives. I've done this before, but it bears repeating. The Bible says that the Virgin Mary was espoused to a man named Joseph. Now, espoused is an archaic word. And so uh, modern translations will usually render it engaged or betrothed. But espousal is something more than that. Uh, in, in most societies, marriage is both a civil or legal event as well as a religious one. And in those days, uh, the Jewish couples were espoused up to a year before the actual wedding ceremony. And this makes sense, you know, when you, when you figure that a, a, what a big event a marriage is. And, and the need for the announcement to be made, for the invitations to be sent, for to make all the necessary uh, preparations, allow time for out-of-town guests to travel when, you know, at a time when people traveled on foot and so on. So the espousal, the, the contractual or legal aspect of the union was accomplished before all of those complicated and, and let's face it, expensive preparations. Uh, and in other words, you made the legal commitment before you went to all that trouble Uh, to make sure that neither party was likely to back out. So you'll note that Joseph is already referred to in the scripture as Mary's husband. So when a couple was espoused, they were legally married, but they would not consummate the union until after the religious ceremony, and only after the marriage ceremony would they live under the same roof. So sometime after they had been espoused, but before the marriage ceremony, Joseph learned that Mary was with child. Hence, the anxiety of St. Joseph. Uh, You know, it's common for biblical commentators and homilists to ruminate on the suffering that poor Joseph must have endured when he discovered that uh, Mary was pregnant. Most unwelcome news. But what does the scripture actually say? It's from Matthew chapter 1, 18 through 25. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been espoused to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, For that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. For he will save his people from their sins. All this, Matthew tells us, took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. When Joseph woke from sleep, as did the uh, and. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to the son, to a son, and he called his name Jesus. I apologize for stumbling over the scriptures there. But it it says he knew her not. In other words, they didn't sleep together before Jesus was born. And this, by the way, does not suggest that they did sleep together after he was born, but only that the baby was definitely not Joseph's. And that Mary remained a virgin, even though she brought forth a son. Now, the scripture says that she was found to be with child of the Holy Spirit. Now, these last words are often taken as uh, an editorial comment by St. Matthew for for the sake of the reader. But what if St. Joseph knew from the start that the pregnancy was a miracle? Not just that Mary was with child, but with child of the Holy Spirit. Now, this is no-nonsense Catholic, so I have to ask which reading, which interpretation makes the most sense? Let's take a closer look at the text, pardon me, and the opinions of uh, some of those who are much more holy and learned than yours truly. First, Joseph is described as a just man, or in some translations, a righteous man, meaning that he scrupulously kept the law of Moses. But under the Old Testament law, this is according to uh, Leviticus and Deuteronomy, an adulterous woman should be put to death. Now, if he really thought Mary had been unfaithful, Surely, as a just man, he would expect her to pay a price. But the scripture says he didn't want to expose her to shame. And so he decided to divorce her quietly because being espoused, right, the only way to break that marriage contract was through death or divorce. Now, Catholic tradition offers three main interpretations to explain why Joseph resolved to end their espousal in this way. First, most popular, is the suspicion theory. And this interpretation holds that when Joseph discovered Mary's pregnancy, he suspected her of adultery, which is pretty reasonable under the circumstances. And he decided to divorce her, and this would be under the conditions of uh, Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 through 4. That is, until the angel informs him in a dream about the baby's miraculous conception. Now, I believe that there's more to it than that. That as a just man, that he directs his action according to the word of God, first the scripture and then the message of the angel. This was the opinion of Christendom and St. Augustine. And since my pastor is canon, Augustinian canon, no surprise, he'd go down that route. But there's more to it. And we'll talk about that when we come back with more No Nonsense Catholic, right here on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Welcome back to No Nonsense Catholic. Talking about the anxiety of St. Joseph and the various interpretations, we started with the suspicion theory. The idea that uh, Joseph uh, suspected Mary uh, of adultery until the angel told him in a dream that the child was from the Holy Spirit. The next uh, theory is similar. It's called the perplexity theory. And that position holds that, that Joseph just found it, this pregnancy, to be inexplicable. Uh, divorce seemed the only option, but, but he wanted to do it quietly because he just couldn't bring himself to, to believe that, that Mary had been unfaithful. And so they say he's a just man uh, because he lives by the law of God, but because he judged Mary's situation with the utmost charity. Okay. This, uh, by the way, was the opinion of none other than St. Jerome translator of the Latin Vulgate. So we've got Chrysostom and Augustine going with the suspicion theory and Jerome with the perplexity theory, but there's a third, and that is the reverence theory. And that, in my opinion, is what best accords with the plain sense of the text, that Joseph knew from the start that Mary was with child of the Holy Spirit, just like the scripture says. And faced with that, he considered himself unworthy, to be you know such an intimate part of the lord's work and and so his decision to quietly separate from mary was a matter of discretion to keep secret this mystery within her so when the angel appears to him in a dream i mean he confirms uh, what joseph already knows that the child is from the holy spirit but he urges him to satisfy his fear that's what he said don't be afraid Of what? Don't be afraid of the vocation to be the legal father of the Messiah. Right? Because you know that that's probably not going to go down well. (laughs) The angel's message, therefore, is is not primarily the is of the Holy Spirit, but rather be not afraid, which, of course, then becomes a or perhaps even the common theme of the New Testament. So Joseph is a just man because of his deep humility and his reverence for the miraculous work of God. The opinion, uh, this uh, opinion is the one that I hold, and it's the one that I happen to share with uh, Scott Hahn. We agree on a number of things, Uh, but I would hasten to add that it's uh, also the opinion of St. Thomas Aquinas and the great St. Bernard of Clairvaux, and that's pretty good company and and proof that this isn't some kind of uh, uh, modern innovation. So the angel Gabriel appears to Mary to ask her to be the mother of Jesus, and she said yes. And Joseph also received a visit from an angel in a dream, like the the first Joseph, asking him to agree to God's plan. And The Gospel says when Joseph awoke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. Just as Mary said, I'm the handmaid of the Lord, be it done unto me according to thy word, Joseph also did likewise, when he overcame his fear and obeyed the angel. Elizabeth said to Mary, Blessed is she, or of Mary, blessed is she who believed the promise made her by the Lord. And the same could also be said of Saint Joseph. Blessed is he who believed the promise made him by the Lord. Now I can imagine Saint Joseph's pain at the poor circumstances of our Lord's birth. I can imagine uh, the pain that he must have suffered when Simeon told Mary that a sword of sorrow would pierce her, her soul. I can imagine that uh, Joseph suffered when he had to take Mary and Jesus to Egypt to avoid Herod's slaughter of the innocents. But I do not believe that he ever considered Mary guilty of sin. That's no nonsense. And contemplating this, you know, it just makes you consider the consequences of the yes or no of just one couple. At the beginning of the Old Testament, we can see how the actions of one couple, Adam and Eve, affected everybody that came after them by depriving us of the gift of of original justice before God. And then at the beginning of the New Testament, we see the world changing consequences of another couple, Mary and Joseph, in restoring the gift of sanctifying grace to the children of the church. In 1870, Pope Pius IX uh, declared St. Joseph patron of the universal church. This is the same Pope, by the way, who made uh, the Immaculate Conception a dogma of the faith. He said, in the same way that he once kept unceasing holy watch over the family of Nazareth, so now does St. Joseph protect and defend with his heavenly patronage the Church of Christ. And then the prayer to St. Joseph that was composed by Pope Leo XIII says, Most beloved Father Joseph, dispel the evil of falsehood and sin. Graciously assist us from heaven in our struggle with the powers of darkness. And just as once you saved the child Jesus from mortal danger, so now defend God's holy church from the snares of her enemies and from all adversity. St. Joseph, pray for us. Amen. You know, uh, switching gears, like millions of other Americans, my family and I used to watch the Peanuts Christmas special every year. And, you know, with our kids. And it remains a timely reminder of what Christmas is all about, Charlie Brown. I want to look at that right now. Birth of Jesus from Luke chapter 2. It says, starting in in verse 1, In those days a decree was issued by Caesar Augustus that a census should be taken throughout the entire world. This was the first such registration, and it took place when Quirinius was governor of Syria. Everyone traveled to his own town to be enrolled. Joseph, therefore, went from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to the city of David in Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family of David. He went to be registered together with Mary, his betrothed, who was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for her to have the child, and she gave birth to her firstborn son. She wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. You know, there's an important point here that they said that they went to Bethlehem because Joseph was of the line of David. And, you know, the the Gospel of Matthew begins with this long genealogy connecting Joseph to the line of David. You know, they go through generations, 14 generations, and they finally get to Joseph. And and every time it says, so-and-so begat so-and-so, and 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 so-and-so begat so-and-so. And on and on and on. And, you get, and and Joseph, who was the husband of Mary, because he did not beget Jesus. Be, Jesus was begotten of, of the Holy Ghost. He was conceived by, by the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Blessed Virgin. But it's important to establish that genealogy because Joseph is in line for the kingship of Israel. He's a direct descendant of David. And so Now, Mary is also of the house of David, and so Jesus is genetically a descendant of David because of his mother, but legally, he's the descendant of David because of his foster father, Saint Joseph, and that is why he has the right to assume the kingship. Extremely important. That's why, I mean, if you ever wondered, what is this list doing here? That's what it's doing there. All right, and speaking of kings, Caesar Augustus was the ruler of this vast empire, which of course included Judea, and the local king uh, Herod the Great, who was the father of Herod Antipas, who was the one who uh, ran afoul of John the Baptist. <clears throat> he was not an independent sovereign; he was a puppet king under the Romans, uh, to whom he had to pay taxes from, uh, you know, as tribute. And so the enrollment of the subjects of the empire. Uh, throughout the empire, but in Judea as well, was conducted for tax purposes, all right? It was to make an assessment of what Herod owed the empire, all right? And so the census was made by tribes and families, according to the Jewish custom. Now, that meant that all the patriarchs had to go each to his own city, right? To the town where his family originated, which is where the public register was kept. And Bethlehem was the town of David, So as Mary and Joseph were descended from him, their names had to be inscribed there. Bethlehem, about five miles uh, to the south of Jerusalem, but about 70 miles from Nazareth, which is a a long way to go on foot with a pregnant wife, even if she's riding on a donkey, uh, like on the Christmas cards, right? So (laughs) when Mary and Joseph arrived at Bethlehem, Scripture says there was no room for them in the inn. So many people were there. So they went to a cave or grotto outside the town that was used as a stable and therefore fitted with a manger. And today, over the grotto where our Lord was born, there there was raised a magnificent church. Uh, It was first built by the Emperor Constantine at the request of his mother, St. Helena. And in the grotto of the Nativity, in the actual place where Jesus was born, they used to always keep 32 lamps lit, representing each of the years prior to the final year of his passion, he was thirty-three, when he went to the cross, and so it was, you know, represented that period of time. But tradition tells us that the child was born to Mary while she was absorbed in prayer. Uh, it's one of my pet peeves with the Jesus movies, and 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 in my opinion, too many Christmas homilies, that Mary's portrayed as undergoing the pain of childbirth, uh, which is one of the curses of original sin, from which. She was preserved immaculate. She never had the stain of original sin. She didn't suffer from the effects of original sin. She had no no darkening of the intellect, no weakening of the will, no concupiscence. And she remained a virgin after the birth as before. So the old Roman catechism describes the birth of Christ this way. Wonderful beyond expression or conception, it says. He is born of his mother without any diminution of her maternal virginity and as he afterwards went forth from the sepulcher whilst it was closed and sealed and entered into the room in which his disciples were assembled, the doors being shut. Or not to depart from natural events which we witness every day as the rays of the sun penetrate without breaking or injuring in the least the substance of glass. After a like but more incomprehensible manner did Jesus come forth from his mother's womb without injury to her maternal virginity which immaculate and perpetual forms the just theme of our eulogy. This was the work of the Holy Ghost, who at the conception and birth of the Son so favored the Virgin Mother as to impart to her fecundity and yet preserve inviolate her perpetual virginity. My friend, this is not a fairy tale. This is not a romantic storybook understanding of an historical event. It is Catholic dogma, the divine maternity, and perpetual virginity are day fide. They must be believed in order to hold the Catholic faith. And that's no nonsense. All right, we'll be back with more right after this, so stay with us here on Virgin Most Powerful Radio and No Nonsense Catholic. Well, welcome back. Final uh, final quarter of today's program. And I've got so much stuff that I'm not going to get to. But uh, hopefully we'll just keep doing this for years on end and I'll eventually get to it all. But uh, in the meantime, just a couple more uh, comments regarding the birth of Christ. One being divine uh, providence, right? That the prophet Micah, or Micah, or Micahus, uh, foretold that the Savior would be born at Bethlehem. Unlikely, considering that Joseph and Mary both lived in Nazareth. And yet... It was the providence of God that directed the pagan Roman emperor to order his subjects to be enrolled right at that time uh, so that they would go, uh, Mary and Joseph, to Bethlehem. And unwittingly then, you know, the Roman emperor himself was made part of the fulfillment of of the prophecy that the Redeemer would be born in Bethlehem. Also, we see the, the divinity of Jesus Christ, that he is true man born of the Virgin Mary, the child of Mary. Uh, And the son of David, but he's also a true God, that he's the son of the Most High, as was announced to the Blessed Virgin by the angel. And, um, you know, uh, at midnight mass, well, let me see, I I, I wanted to mention that the the divinity of Christ is not something that was readily apparent. You couldn't be seen as we had to perform miracles and so forth to, to get people on board. All that anybody would have seen uh, on that first Christmas is a baby, a human baby in a manger. But he revealed himself as God to our hearing. That The angels came and to announce that, that this little child in the crib is, is the Savior, is the Messiah, is the, is the very Son of God, the Lord himself. And so we fall in adoration before the crib, uh, before the child, and say, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, and in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord. And, uh, you know, at the midnight mass, as I was about to say, they, they put up the Christmas tree, you know, between the, uh, four Sunday of Advent mass, and, and the midnight Christmas mass, they put up the Christmas trees, and, and the creche scene, in the sanctuary. And, um, you know, the, the priest said that we would be leaving it there until the 2nd of February, which is the Feast of the Purification of Mary and also the, the Presentation of Jesus, although he said that other churches might take theirs down sooner. And it's likewise, you know, the same thing in our house, that we, uh, even though the tree and, and some of the other decorations come down beforehand, we also leave the Nativity up until February the 2nd, because that's the tradition of the church. That's when Christmas really ends. Oh, let's see what else. We also see the love of God. You know, the, the eternal Son of God becomes man and hides his majesty and his omnipotence under the form of a helpless child. Took the form of a servant and became like us in all things but sin. But why? Why why become a man? Why why suffer and die? Why why did he wish to redeem us in the first place? And the answer is that he loved us. He loved us with an, a divine love that is an infinite love. And that's quite a thought. It's a little, you know, food for your Christmas meditation. That God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son so that everyone who believes in him might not perish, but might have eternal life. Those are the words of St. John in his gospel. He also wrote in his first epistle, let us therefore love God because God first loved us. And then the scripture says that, um, Mary brought forth her firstborn son. Now, does this suggest? You know, we also talked about that they didn't have relations until he was born, but now it refers to her as her firstborn. Does that suggest that Mary had other children? Well, in a word, no. Because firstborn is a legal term and has to do with social standing and rights of inheritance. It doesn't imply that Mary had other children after Jesus, only that she had none before him. And consider that Scripture also refers to Jesus as the firstborn of God the Father and we know that God didn't have any other children that that Jesus is his only begotten son and yet scripture calls him firstborn and we we celebrate uh, the nativity there are three Christmas masses right there's the midnight mass and there's Mass at dawn and then there's mass during the day uh, traditionally I mean now I, I don't know they, maybe they do more I don't know but um The point is that once a year, priests were allowed to say three Masses in one day, and many uh, did because, you know, it's to give thanks to the three persons of the Trinity, number one, and number two, to honor that threefold birth of Christ, right? His eternal birth as, you know, he was born from eternity, God the Son. Um, And then his uh, temporal birth, the birth of his mother Mary in Bethlehem in the manger at Christmas, and then his spiritual birth in our hearts, where he reigns right now, that happens at our baptism. So the three births of Christ, if you will. And it's a reminder to um, these three masses that even in the midst of, of the joy of the season, remember, we remember that Jesus uh, was born to suffer for us. And that the sufferings began with his birth, that he became man to make satisfaction for our sins to redeem us from sin and hell and that he suffered for us all his life beginning with uh, you know coming into the world in a state of utmost poverty and humility right for the son of god to take upon himself human nature at all uh, is an infinite humiliation even if he'd been born in a royal palace right laid on a silken cushion in a golden cradle it would still be an infinite humiliation but he desired to humiliate himself even more, to be even more humble, and was therefore born into the world in a poor stable and laid not even in a crib but in a manger. Uh, Bishop Necht, in his classic commentary on the Holy Scripture, says, The Lord of the universe, the son of David, of whose kingdom there was to be no end, could find no home in the city of David. Shut out from the lodgings of man, rejected by human society, he was driven to find a refuge among the beasts and was wrapped in the most coarse of swaddling clothes and laid in a manger belonging to the shepherds. Scripture says the foxes have holes and the birds of the air nests, but the Son of Man hath not where to lay his head. The baby Jesus had no comfortable little bed, no soft, warm pillow. His tender body lay on the hard straw in a narrow crib and was exposed to the winter air. A piece of wood at his birth and a piece of wood at his death. That is all that Jesus received from this world. Our Lord for himself chose for himself poverty and humility to make sacrifice or make a a satisfaction even from his birth for our sins of of, of pride and our concupiscence of the eyes and of the flesh and and to give to us an example of humility and self-denial and mortification that we are meant to follow. The servant is not greater than his master. And as he suffered, we also suffer. Remember, the joyous nativity was soon followed by the slaughter of the innocents. Just as Christmas Day is followed immediately by the feast of St. Stephen, the first Christian martyr. And that's no nonsense. Now, every year, some well-meaning Catholic uh, uh, posts on Facebook how the English Christmas carol, 12 Days of Christmas is a really secret code for Catholic teachings from the days when Catholicism was outlawed in England. You know, the idea that uh, since Catholicism was illegal from the 16th to 19th century, that the song was like a, a mini-catechism used to secretly teach the faith to Catholic children. Well, according to the theory, you've got the partridge in the pear tree is, is Jesus, two turtledoves of the Old and New Testaments, the three French hens, the theological virtues of faith, hope, and love, the four calling birds, the gospels, and or the four evangelists, the five golden rings, the Pentateuch, or the first books of Moses, the six geese laying, the six days of creation, the seven swans of swimming, the seven gifts of the Holy Spirit, eight maids of milking, the Beatitudes, nine ladies dancing, the fruits of the Holy Spirit, ten lords of leaping, the Ten Commandments, eleven pipers piping, uh, the eleven faithful apostles, and the twelve drummers drumming, the articles of the Apostles' Creed. Now, there's some variations, but that's essentially it. But the point is that while Catholicism was certainly suppressed in England during that time, and, and nifty as it would be for this to be some kind of secret code, it, it's, I, I don't think so. <laughs> First off, none of the doctrines uh, enunciated there are unique to Catholicism. They're all embraced by the Anglicans. So there wouldn't have been any need to teach them secretly. And it's not clear how a song would, uh, you know, aid in catechizing, because it's not clear how the gifts connect symbolically with the doctrines, right? How... You know, what, what do three French hens have to do with faith, hope, and charity, and so forth? Um, let's see here. Probably, I think, the strongest argument against this theory is that it didn't exist until the 1970s. You know, speculative articles, right? Remember that this—I was around in the 1970s. It was a time when, when speculative history was very popular. Uh, and, and the, you know, the speculative historians theorized that the Egyptian pyramids were built by space aliens, for example. <laughs> The point is that there's just no corroborating testimony from the 16th to the 19th centuries or at any other time until the 1970s. And that doesn't mean that people still can't enjoy this carol or even use it as a tool for evangelization. More power to you. But it's almost certainly not its original intent. But speaking of Christmas, I would be remiss if I did not say that my greatest Christmas gift, these past 27 Christmases, has been the one my true love gave to me. And that is the gift of faith that was granted to me by Almighty God. And I must, uh, you know, um, renew my gratitude and say that it has transformed everything in my life. And that Christmas means so much more to me than it ever did or ever could have before. And the indispensable part of that gift for which I am most truly thankful are the many Catholics in my life Uh, Most especially my wife, Betty, and my mentor, Father Benjamin, God rest his soul, and the others who loved me enough to share their faith with me. And that, my good friends, is no nonsense. Okay, next week is a brand new year. I'm going to be sharing the truth about the Star of Bethlehem and also going to be talking about fiducia supplicants. I have held off, held myself aloof from the fray, regarding this uh, final Christmas gift of the year from Pope Francis, hopefully it's the final one. Um, and I, you know, I wanted to wait until the initial reactions were over until I could read the document and try and absorb it. And and then also look at the reactions to the reactions and the reactions from the, 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 uh, the source of the document uh, itself and so on. So that we could take a no nonsense look at fiducia supplicants at the genuine novelties that are present in it and what it might mean for the nature of priestly blessings and what the document itself, you know, what everything means, what all the commentary means, how it all fits together and uh, and also going to look at blessings in general, the nature of blessings and the practice of going for a blessing at communion time, Right? All of that and more next week here on No Nonsense Catholic. And in the meantime, I just want to say uh, for the final time this year, thanks for listening. And I want to wish you and yours a very blessed Christmas season and say, um, as always, may God richly bless you and your family. Till next time.